lead us in prayer, and then we'll look at these lessons a little bit more deeply. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you so much uh, for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. I thank you, Father, that we indeed can look back on our year and see your hand of mercy upon us because we know that you exist, you're real, you're sovereign. Your providential care is upon your people. And because of that, we know that you have lessons for us to learn at the end of any difficult or hard time. And so, Father, indeed, bless us as your people. We're on the cusp of a new year. And we can look back and see your hand of mercy. And we can glean from wisdom of lessons learned this year to help us and prepare our hearts for the next. And so I pray for that, O oh Lord. Bless us now, your people. This is your word cemented to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, the context that I just read for you from Exodus chapter 19 and Exodus chapter 20 is Israel had just come out of exile. It's been about three and a half weeks up to this point when God delivered them from the Egyptians. They walked through the Red Sea and they came to a place now where Mount Sinai, where God can speak to them. And if you think about exile, if you think about the forced exile that they were in, think about all that they suffered while they were in exile. I wrote down some things. Um, first, the deep emotional distress of being in exile. The heavy burdens that they experienced in exile. The feeling of abandonment. They went through a time of great difficulty and loss, pain and suffering. They were economically depressed. They weren't free to move around as they would like. Their Sabbath was disrupted. They couldn't worship the way they wanted to. Many of their loved ones died and they couldn't give them a proper burial. After exile, life couldn't return to normal. Well, if that sounds familiar, that's because we as a people have gone through the same thing. We've gone through an exilic experience. We felt the same circumstances, emotions, and experience as the children of Israel did while they were in exile. This year has been an exile of sorts for us. And what amazes me about this passage is right after they had experienced this exile, this time of deep emotional distress, this time of pain, and this time of suffering, what's amazing to me is that the first thing God does for them is give them some lessons and some reminders. And lessons that they were supposed to hold deep to their heart. And those lessons are found in verse 4 through 8, and then chapter 20, verse number 2. And here's the first lesson. The first lesson is this. Always focus on re and reflect on the goodness of God. Always focus and reflect on the goodness of God, especially amidst difficult time. Notice with me in verse number 4. 
God says this, you yourself have seen what I did to Egypt and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. What is God doing here? God is saying, look, do not forget that it was me that brought you out of of Egypt. Don't forget that it's me that brought you out of this time. And please don't forget my goodness that I bore you up on eagles' wings. Now, this passage, in this passage, that language is poetic language. And whenever you see poetic language bearing you up on eagles' wings outside of poetry literature, we're meant to stop and consider the importance of that because that's what God was doing for them. God was saying, yes, you know I exist. You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. But do you understand my goodness? Now, look at this imagery. God says, look... My goodness is seen in the fact that I bore you up on eagle's wings. Now, some of you that watch birds probably have never seen eagles bear their young up on eagle's wings. Now, that's because birds aren't meant to actually bear anything up on their wings. They're built for flight. So what's the purpose of this metaphor? Well, the purpose of this metaphor isn't to say that um, eagles literally carry their uh, chicks or, or their young on, e- on their wings and fly them around the air. That's not the purpose. The purpose is to highlight a contrast. And here's the contrast. Birds in general don't carry their young, but the few birds that do, ducks and swans, they do it on the water on their backs. How many of you have seen that? I've seen that. I walked uh, by a pond one day and I was shocked there was this uh, swan, or uh, sorry, it was a duck, and he had like four chicks on, on their back, and I couldn't believe it, right? Now, here's what God is trying to say. A, a bird like a duck carries its young on its back. But even though they're doing something that's good, that's profitable, at the end of the day, it's really not good enough. Because a predator can swoop down and take the young off the back of the duck. The security that the mother is giving, the duck mother is giving her chicks, is limited and insufficient. It's limited and insufficient. But God says, imagine a mighty eagle that soars above all the predators. Imagine a mighty eagle that um, soars above the clouds. There is no predator that can come and swoop down and take you off of his back. There is no situation. There is no event. There is no set of circumstances that can harm you. Because he has borne us up on eagle's wings. And it's meant to be a symbol of God's protective love and goodness to his people. That he has borne us up through this time. And that he is good. Now, why is it important for us to know and remember the goodness of God? Here's why. Because the primary route Satan uses to get people, God's people, or people in general... To, to unbelief or not believe in God is by denying God's goodness. 
Most people that I meet that are atheists are atheists because, number one, they began by denying that God was good. Something happened in their life, and they think, well, a good God wouldn't have allowed that to happen. That's Satan MO. And by the way, that's, that's how it works in the world, too. I mean, like most of us, right, uh, I've seen uh, the Georgia uh, sort of ads and election runoffs, right? And one of the things that shocks me is that the candidate never tells about the other candidate's goodness. The exact opposite. They're always telling you that, you know, Warnock is, is evil and he hates this person and Leffler is a thief and Ossoff did this, you know. They, they always try to discredit the goodness of the other person. Why? Because if you could discredit the other person's goodness, you discredit them. And Satan tries to do the same thing when it comes to God. He tries to discredit God's goodness. He tries to get us to think that God isn't as good as he is. And that's how he attacks us. We see this especially in the book of Job. If you go to the book of Job, what does Job try and do? Job tries to discredit, uh, sorry, Satan tries to discredit Job's goodness and God's goodness. Remember, Satan goes to God and says, God, have you seen my servant Job? Right? Have you seen Job? He only, he's only serving you because you're good to him. You take away all those things and he wouldn't serve you anymore. What is he doing there? He is trying to discredit Job by questioning Job's goodness. And then what does Satan do in Job's heart towards God? He goes to Job and tries to convince Job that God's not good. Listen to the questions that Job gives beginning in chapter 3. Why was I even born? Then he says, how can a man be just with God? In other words, what can we do to justify ourselves before God? He's, meant, he's thinking nothing because I've done everything right and here I am. And his third question, if a man die, shall he live again? Meaning, does God even save us? He begins to question the goodness of God because he knows if he can question the goodness of God. Satan knows this. If he can get us to think that God is not good, he can get us to discredit who God is. And so God comes to Job. And he reminds Job that, look, Job, see, I am good in my creation. My goodness is seen in my righteous act. And later on in the book of Job, Job comes and he repents before the Lord. And he demonstrates his goodness and his repentance. And he demonstrates God's goodness by affirming that God is indeed good. And he puts Satan to shame. Brothers and sisters, we have gone through a lot this year. It's going to take a very long time for us to process the pain and suffering that we have all seen. But never forget this. God is good. He has borne his peoples up like a mighty eagle would bear up its young. Don't ever question the goodness of God. Don't ever doubt the goodness of God, no matter what. Because the moment you begin to doubt the goodness of God, you begin to go doubt God himself. 
Remember the Westminster Catechism when it's asked, what is God? It says God is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, full of wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Goodness is a part of the character of God, and when we doubt his goodness, we doubt him. And so the first lesson is don't doubt God's goodness. Here's the second lesson. That every trial that we experience is meant to drive us to praise God more and draw us nearer to God. You say, well, pastor, how is that seen in this passage? Well, look with me at verse number four, chapter 19, verse number four, towards the end. God says this, look at how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. That language of brought you to myself is the language of coming out of Egypt. He said, I delivered you out of Egypt and I brought you to myself. Now contrast that to what he says in chapter 20 and verse number two. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Now notice those two statements. I brought you to myself, and I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Both of those are like two sides of the same coin. They're two different, they're they're the same event, but they're two different perspectives. The first perspective is this. Whenever God says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, he's trying to emphasize Israel's responsibility to him, to worship him, and to serve him, and to praise him. Remember what happened the moment that they were delivered out of Egypt. What is the first thing that they did? They wrote a song of praise. Because they have been brought out of Egypt. And they were meant to praise the Lord. That's what we see in chapter 20 and verse number 2. God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And right after that, he gives them 10 words, 10 commandments, and then a whole litany of commandments and words. All that were supposed to drive them to praise and worship the Lord. When God brings us out of a situation, beloved, remember, we are called to praise him. And to worship him. That's our responsibility. Our responsibility is not to become depressed and downtrodden. When we see the deliverance of God from a trial, we immediately should run to praise him and thank him. But notice the other thing that he emphasizes in verse number four. That he brought you to himself. Do you realize that every trial that we experience is meant to draw us near to the Lord. It is God trying to draw us near and near to himself, even in the midst of suffering and pain. I remember one of my mentors told us a story of how he proposed to his uh, girlfriend, now wife. And he talks about how the, the weeks leading up to this proposal was a disaster right? He was trying to figure out how he was going to uh, ask her to marry her and trying to prepare and all this stuff. And and that led to uh, a set of bad circumstances. The first of which is that they were separated for a long time. They didn't see each other for several weeks because he was busy working behind the scenes to figure out, hey, how am I going to buy this ring? How am I going to propose to her? How am I going to do all this stuff? And so he spent all this time away from her. 
The next is that he didn't speak to her very much during that time. For about a month, he, did, he wasn't talking to her at all. And when he did, it was very short. It's very short with her. And so leading up to this time when he was going to propose, she actually thought he was going to break up with her. And so when he went over by her house to actually propose to her, he tried to walk near her, and she would walk away from him. And he tells the story that every time he tries to walk near to her, she would position herself to walk away from him because she didn't want him to break up with her in her house. And so she's trying to stay away from, from him, and finally he corners her, and he says, look, stop. And so she stops, and she begins to cry. And he kneels down on, on a, you know, he kneels down, and he gives her a ring. <laughs> and she's just crying. And here's the point of that story, and it's, it's just a beautiful point. She interpreted the trials of the weeks before, him not talking to her and the separation. She interpreted all of that as a sign that he wanted to break up with her. But did, did she know that all of that wasn't a sign that he was trying to break up with her, that those were signs that he wanted to draw near to her? And it's a beautiful reminder to us that when it looks like God is trying to separate from us through these trials, that whenever we go through trials, it looks like God is trying to break up with us, so to speak. That's not the case. That these trials are actually meant to draw us nearer to God. Remember, God says, I have brought you to myself. How has God brought you closer to him this year? That's a question you should ask yourself. What has God done to draw me near to him? What specific things that I can point to to show God's hand of grace and mercy in his desire to draw nearer to me? You know, for me, one of those things is actually not being able to worship with all of you. For three plus months, I worshiped with Scott, which is not a bad thing. In fact, I enjoyed it, got to know him well. But boy, it killed me to not worship with you. And in that moment, every time I, before I came into the sanctuary, I would pray and I would say, God, Man, you have to be so close to me right now. Because there are so many of my brothers and sisters I cannot be near to. I need the nearness of your presence. And God really delivered and sustained me. Beloved, how has God done that for you? Is it through a trial, a pain, and a testing? Do not see God's hand on you, in your circumstances, and your situation, as God punishing you. Some of you have gone through surgery. Some of you are battling with illnesses. Don't look at those things as if God is trying to punish you. Some of you are having strife in your home, wayward children and the like. Don't look at those things as God trying to punish you. Look at them as God trying to draw near to you. Because that's what he is trying to do. 
Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you, says James. What a wonderful reminder. Third and final lesson is this. Don't forget your covenant responsibilities. Don't forget your covenant responsibilities. Notice with me in verse 5 and 6. God says to them, Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. Now notice with me in verse number 2 of chapter 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In both of those contexts, God is calling the people of Israel to covenant faithfulness. To be faithful to the covenant, and to be faithful to their responsibilities. Now, I've heard it said, and it's true, if you don't understand what a covenant means and covenant responsibilities, you cannot understand the Bible or God's dealing with his people. Now, for the benefit of those of you that don't know what covenant means, covenant is simply defined as a relationship that God establishes with us and guarantees by his word. That's the children's catechism. Elsewhere, some have defined a covenant as a bond in blood sovereignly applied. But all of those things are designed to simply say that God enters into covenant with us. In other words, God forms a relationship with us. And there are two things you need to know about this relationship that God's formed with his people. Number one, it's for our benefit, not God's. When God establishes covenants with us, it's for our benefit and our blessing. And that's why covenants are a beautiful thing to God's people. But the second thing you need to keep in mind is that with every covenant, there are responsibilities. And notice, God has already told us his responsibility. His responsibility, in verse number three, is to bear us up on eagles' wings. Pardon me, verse number four is to bear us up on eagle's wing, to protect us, to be there for us, and to provide for us. Our responsibility simply is to keep his covenant and his word. That's our responsibility. And what God is saying here is that that responsibility should be a desire for us, a burning desire. Everyone in this room should desire to be and to do the covenant of the Lord. There's a beautiful illustration about desiring to do God's will found in 2 Samuel chapter 23. And uh, in that passage, David is in, in the cave of Adullam and he's looking down at Bethlehem and he muses aloud. He says, oh, if I could have water from the well of Bethlehem. And listening are three of his mighty men. And they hear David's will and David's desire. And they rush down and they fight off the Philistine garrison. And they get some water and they bring it to David. And David takes it and drinks it. That's not what he does. You all know that. What does David do? David pours it out. 
Now, most people stop in the narrative there and they said, oh, look at these men, how they risked their lives for David. They wanted to do the will of David. Isn't this great? But that's not the point of the narrative. The point of the narrative is what David said afterwards. David pours out the water and he says, I cannot drink the blood of men. In other words, David is saying, look, God's desire is not that these men would have risked their lives for me, fulfilling my desire. David is modeling to them that his desire to please the Lord by not drinking of this water that these men risked their lives for is greater than their passion to fulfill his will. It's a powerful text in the Bible. I don't want you to miss this because this is so important. David is saying, no, God wouldn't have willed these men to go and drink of that water. That's not what God wanted. And so because that's not what God wanted, I'm not going to drink this water because if I drank the water, it would show that I was fulfilling my will and my desire. In other words, he was putting his will and his desire below that of God's. And if you notice in this passage, one of the things that stand out to you, that when God calls them the covenant obedience, all of this was done before they actually knew what the covenant was. That means that they had a desire to do God's will even before they knew what it was. And the story of David reminds us that we should have that desire to do God's will, that God's will and God's desire is below our own. Beloved, there is many things that we didn't know God was calling us to do in 2020. And yet we found ourselves as a people giving more than we ever did before, serving more than we ever did before. We found ourselves doing things that we never thought we would have done before. But all of that happened because we had a desire to do God's will. And let me tell you, 2021, I have no idea what 2021 will bring. But I know this. We better have a desire to do whatever God is calling us to do. Because 2021 will probably be even worse than 2020. It might. I don't know if it will. But I know this. If you have a firm and strong desire to do God's will, it doesn't matter what 2021 looks like. It doesn't matter. And that's why God's people must cultivate this desire to do God's will. I want to make one last point. I think it's actually the most important point of the sermon, so I left the best for last. Here's the best part of this. God knew Israel wasn't going to obey his law perfectly. He knew that he wasn't, they weren't going to obey this covenant. He gave it to them. They said they would, but he knew they wouldn't. And that's why he sent Jesus into the world. He sent Jesus into the world not to abolish the law or the covenant, but to obey the law and the covenant. And it was Jesus' desire to do what we were incapable of doing, which is obeying. Paul says it like this in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, and we are, that's not up for debate, 
If we are faithless, he remains, finish it, faithful. He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. What does that mean that he cannot deny himself? Well, in this passage, God says that he will bear his people up on eagles' wings. He will provide for them. He will bless them. He will take care of them. He will save them from sin and from misery. And even when we didn't keep his covenant, even when we didn't keep our side of the bargain, he sent Jesus to earth to do what we couldn't do. And in Jesus fulfilling the law, and dying on the cross, and raising us again, we now have the power of the Holy Spirit that enables us to be faithful to the covenant. Isn't this a good God? See, I'm going to circle all the way back to the goodness of God. He knew that Israel wasn't going to keep this covenant. He knew that we don't have the power to keep this covenant. And so he gave us Jesus. And so he gives us the power of the Holy Spirit. I want to encourage you all with this. As I said before, I don't know what 2021 will bring. But I know this. If you have a firm desire to do the will of God, he has given you the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish that desire. So hold your head up high. Trust your God that he is good, that everything he does is meant to draw you close to him and continue to walk in obedience to him, knowing that you have the power of the Holy Spirit to do it. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you indeed. We praise you. What glorious lessons that you've left behind in your word for us. The lesson that you indeed are good. Your goodness is seen everywhere. The lesson that every trial and testing and tribulation we go through are designed to cause us to praise you and cause us to draw near to you. And finally, Lord, that we, your people, are called to live in obedience to you. And even though we can't, I am thankful that you gave us the Holy Spirit that enables us to do what is pleasing in your sight. You are so good to us, God. You have proven that in 2020, and I know because you are faithful and you will not deny yourself, you will prove that to us in 2021. Be with us now in Jesus' name. Amen.